Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta, your Dana Osband, our Daf of the Day, Masechet Rosh Hashanah, Daf Vav, page six. So I want to actually continue the discussion from the other day of the neder versus nedava. Right, we said neder is when someone takes an oath of a value that you're going to pay versus a, a gift offering, which is a nedava. But so the Gemara on Amud Aleph here says, Uma neder Now, obviously, it's still in the context of of other vows and so on. But the Gemara says specifically, what is the difference between the neder and the nedava? Neder, meit onignav chayav ba'achriyuto. Nedava, meita onignava, eino chayavet ba'achriyuta. I feel like we've talked about this many months or even maybe a year ago. This, dif- this distinction is that with a vow offering, if something happens to the animal or the specific thing that you are going to be donating, if, it's, if it dies, if it's stolen, you you, the person who makes the vow, is still obligated to pay the amount that that thing would have been worth. If the, it's a gift offering, then you're speaking specifically about that item, that animal, that particular bundle of wheat, whatever it's going to be that's supposed to be the gift offering. And if it dies or it's stolen or whatever happens to it, then you're not obligated to pay it, meaning you're just obligated to give that one thing. The, the word that I think makes this makes the most sense, I feel, is when we're talking about currency, meaning regular money, you talk about, let's say, dollars or shekel or pounds or whatever it is, money is fungible, right? Fungible meaning whatever it is that you're talking about in terms of, you're not talking about that dollar. So you owe someone $5, you don't owe them that $5 bill. You owe them the value that is $5, which you might fulfill by using that particular $5 bill. But if the wind blows that $5 bill away, money is fungible. You need to still pay that money from some other $5 that you have somewhere else, it's about the value of it. And that's the neder. The dava would be if it was that particular $5, there's something special about that. It's got the right, I don't know, serial numbers, or it's particularly, it's got sentimental value, something like that. Then that would be the nedava, even if it's the same actual money. Meaning here they're not talking about money, they're talking about animals, right, that are used for specific offerings. And I, I believe we can extrapolate from this. I don't think it's a stretch, and I do think it's done elsewhere if we're talking about grain offerings as well. Um, but currency, the way we think of money today and its fungibility, is actually a more modern invention, I, I suppose. Um, okay, so then, so Rava has a comment on this. You could have a person set up the case where even though it looks like a neder, it looks like somebody is taking an oath to provide the value of something, but if the, that same person makes a condition, right? I'm going to, I, I again, I'm not saying this, but if one were to say, uh, I am obligating myself in the bringing of a korban olah, which I'm not, and then says, as long as I would not be obligated in the, in the event that something happens to it, meaning that I would have to make up for it if something would happen to it, if it was lost or stolen or so on. So that a person can take that neder and kind of convert it into the a one-time event, um, as it were. I don't know if that's really recommended, but Rava is big gun. So when he says it, meaning his point is that it will work, that that kind of uh, tinkering, uh, making a conditional vow will work. And then the Gemara goes on, when the Breita that we, that's previous on the daf says, with your mouth, that means vows of tzedakah, vows of charity. When you make, according to Rav, when you make a vow of charity, meaning that you're giving something to the poor, 
right? Then that vow kicks in immediately. The amount that you're supposed to give you is you don't make a vow like, oh, in six years, I'll give to the poor. My Tama, why so? Because the whole point is that the poor people who are getting the tzedakah, right, need that charity immediately. So that means that the value of a, of a donation to the poor is treated differently by the Gemara, by the Halacha, than the value of a donation to the temple. For all that we talked about, making sure that you do things in it, and Yardena, you talked about this extensively, that we do things in a timely way, there's a greater immediacy when there's an awareness that there are poor people actually waiting for the value of the donation. And the Gemara explains this. Pshita, Right? The Gemara says, like, you want to say that you're talking about charity, you're talking about tzedakah, in the same context of dealing with the karbanot, where we were talking about the three festivals that you'd want to make sure that you don't delay. The the Torah will have mercy, right? It's Rachmana. The Torah will allow people the leeway to bring their donation over the course of three regalim. Yeah, you, you know, you made the donation, but you can't get to it right now or something happened to your animal. You have a while to fulfill it. But not when we're talking about poor people. Poor people, you rush to it and you get to it and you make sure that they get that donation because they truly do need it. So I'm going to move on to something else that's interesting here. Um, and we seem to be moving away a little bit from this donation piece, but the Gemara brings up a very interesting question about the calendar itself. And what it basically says is it's going through this whole issue of, you know, having to wait sort of this full three, right? So the Gemara basically says that there is a situation where you can have more than a year go by without all three regalim. And so the question basically is, right, that if the regalim have to be in their proper order, right, how can you have a case where you don't have all three festivals in a year? And so they explain, Bishlama Larabi. So they say this could be according to the opinion of Rabbi Huda Hanasi. What we're talking about is a leap year, Ditanya. So we learned in a brisa, Shanat Mima, right? That um, it says in Vayikra in chapter 25, uh, verse 30, that if what we're talking about here is a case of houses that are in walled cities, okay? And an owner is basically given one year to redeem his house if he sells it. In other words, he can sell it and then decide after six months, you know something? I actually want that house back. But if he waits a year, then it becomes permanent of the person who bought it from him. And so the Pasuk says that it has to be redeemed within the space of a Shanat Mima, a full year. So the question is, Rabbi Omer, Rabbi says, So very interestingly, Rabbi Huda Nasi says, for the Shanat Mima, we count 365 days. So we count a solar year. We do not use the calendar for a lunar year. And the rabbis say, no, you count 12 months from day to day. So if the sale was on, let's say, Chet Adar, you're basically going to count until Chet Adar afterwards. And if it's a leap year, 
the leap year is basically added. In other words, the seller then gets sort of this extra month where he potentially could redeem the house if he wanted. So you can basically find a year without three festivals, according to Rabbi Huda Hanasi. How? So let's say you have, okay, if somebody consecrates an animal after Pesach, okay, so he gets the end of the second month of Adar in a leap year. So in other words, he's counted as 365 days. It's Shana Malaya, it's a full year. Rigalim lo malu. But you have not actually had uh, a, another Pesach. So in other words, it's that the person consecrates the animal right after Pesach, right? And if you can't, and it's a leap year, you will count 365 days and it still will not have arrived at the next Pesach. So just to line this all up, a typical lunar, lunar year is 354. A solar year is 365. If you add another month in there, right? You add a second month. So that is going to be 29 to 30 days. That is much more than the differential between 365 and 354, which is just a differential of 11 days. So you can get to your 365 days before you've actually gotten to a Pesach. And that's an example of having a full year, right? Where you've not actually gotten, uh, where not all the festivals is there. Shanam regalim la malu. So it's a full year without all of the festivals, okay? So then according to the Chachamim, is there any circumstance where you can find a year without three festivals? Kiditani Rav Shmaya, so Rav Shmaya taught, and this is another b'risa, Atzeret pa'amim chamisha. Shavuot sometimes falls out on the 5th of Sivan. Pa'amayim shisha, sometimes on the 6th of Sivan. Pa'amam b'shiva, and sometimes on the 7th. Now, this is an interesting b'risa because we'll see this is sort of before the calendar was set the way we have it set, right? And it's more has to do with when we actually have Kiddush HaChodesh. Ha, Ketzat, how is this so? Shnehen Mileen, let's say both months, meaning uh, the uh, are, are going to be full, meaning the month of Nisan is going to be full, and also the month of Iyar um, is, going to, is going to be full, right? So what happens, uh, then it's going to end up being, right, because you're going to count 50 days, it will end up being on the 5th of Shavuot. Let's say it's going to be a short month, right? So one of those months is short. It's only 29. Uh, uh, then it's going to end up on the seventh day. One of those months of Nisan is full, or ER is full, and one is missing one, then it will end up being on the sixth. So that's how we actually fix our calendar. One is full and one is short. And that's how we get that it's always on Vav. But this has to do still when they were doing uh, Kiddush HaChodesh here. Um, so, um, so then they get into that maybe there's a Tana who disagrees with him. Um, and so um, and so that that Tana would be uh, would basically be would be Acherim, right? The Tanya Acherim Omer, we learned that a Bryce Acherim says, Right, the difference between Shavuot one year and Shavuot the you know the next year. right, right, and the difference between Rosh Hashanah to one year to the other, is the difference of four days of the week. In other words, there are three hundred fifty-four days in a lunar year, 
which are divided basically into 12 alternating months, right? Six of those months will be 30 days. Six of those months will be 29 days. So, so therefore, every year is really 50 weeks and four days long. But if it's a leap year, which ends up making the year 383 days, right, then you get to 54 weeks and five days, and then you have a difference of five days between them. So, you know, so he, so Akhiram is looking at, looking at this a little bit differently, but I, I think we're sort of just starting with some of these really interesting calculations that are going to happen with Rosh Hashanah. But this whole idea that sort of the lunar year can actually be longer than the, than the solar year, and that you could have this calendar where we don't actually have all three regalim in a solar year. I mean, once it's spelled out in the Gemara, it makes a lot of sense, but it's kind of one of those things where like, oh, I never thought of that before. That's really interesting. It is really interesting. I think this is one of those times, though, when we would recommend, you know, for anybody who really wants to make, to get a real handle on this, play the episode back and, you know, make a chart of all the dates and the full months and the and the uh, chaser months that Yardina articulated. And I think maybe that will, like, help us as we go forward. And this is uh, the crux of the challenge, I think, of Rosh Hashanah, that there's so much, like, to keep each month in in like holding it as it's supposed to be in line with the other months, given the leap year, the not leap year and so on. Um, this is just the beginning of that. I feel. Um, I, I agree. And then I just want to make one last point before we wrap up this episode, the end of the dot gets into this very interesting discussion about a woman, right. Who makes a vow. And is she also subject to Val Because the question basically is right. Me, Amrina and Halo Machaiba Bariya. Because we know that that actual obligation to go up to the Beit HaMikdash for the Shalosh Regalim is really an obligation for men. It's a time, it's a positive time-bound mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to say Shazman Grama, and women are exempt. So if they're not high to go up three times a year, so in other words, it's not like she had an opportunity to go up that she had to do, right? That's why there's Baal Tachar, because if every man is going up, how could he not have brought what he was supposed to? If she's not high in Re'iyah, how could he? Um, so the question then becomes maybe she's obligated because she's an obligation of rejoicing um, and the obligation of rejoicing is what makes her also be obligated to and so so Abai says to Rabbi Zera right you should derive it from the fact that basically she's obligated to rejoice on a festival did Abai actually say this right but Amar Abaye didn't Abaye say Ishaba Allah misamcha. Doesn't he say that for a woman, her husband must make her joyful? Meaning the obligation doesn't fall on the woman; the obligation falls on a husband to make sure that his wife is going to be joyful. So they're saying no. Rabbi Zera was just sort of explaining Abaye, excuse me, was explaining Rabbi Zera's opinion and holding that since women are uh, bound by a mitzvah to to have simcha on a yom tov. That is what's going to obligate them for Baal Tachar. But I read this passage and I really did think a little bit to myself. I think they like kind of got themselves stuck in a little bit of a corner. Like on the one hand, they're not obligated in Re'ia, but it also doesn't make sense that they wouldn't be bound women by the same, you know, not having three uh, regalim pass or whatever time period, whatever time you're going to hold by and would have to be over on Baal Tachar. So, you know, Rabbi Zera is going to kind of hang his hat on this Simcha thing which, yes, is kind of time-bound, 
it's not really connected. I think he just needed to sort of find a solution for it. And that was his solution. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think about this stuff. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.